You're listening to The Decidedly Podcast. Our guest today is Sarah Knight, known as the anti-guru for her profane approach to giving practical advice. If explicit language isn't for you, please feel free to skip this episode and instead just tune into tomorrow's highlight clip where we bleeped out all of the explicit content. If you're not offended by explicit language, hold on to your hat. There's plenty of it coming at you. That's all for now. Let's get into the episode. I'm Morgan, your producer, and this is Decidedly. You know, we were talking last night. I did some research after our discussion. You had asked me. We were on the way uh, somewhere in past a Lisa's fried chicken and seafood place. Yeah. And you made the comment, which I, I thought was funny. You made the comment because they're so, they're, they're pretty rough looking, let's say. They are certainly niched to a price point. Yeah, and that's a really. The bottom of what you can profit how you can profitably make chicken yeah and and your question to me was do you think they're trying to do better and failing or do you think that's what they're trying to you know they're 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 trying to look this way which is dilapidated let's say yeah like do you think they are do you think they're trying to be uh they're trying to improve and they're just not hitting the mark or well i i can tell you for certain that lisa's fried chicken and seafood places are not trying to be Chick-fil-A. They're, they're, That's what I'm saying. Yeah, so so they're not trying to be Chick-fil-A and failing at it. I think they've dialed in that we want to be the low-cost provider of the uh, fried chicken and seafood in certain communities, and uh, they're killing that. I did some research when I got home. Okay. You want to know how many locations of the Lisa's fried chicken and seafood there are? Okay, because I thought there were like two or three. I days. thought there was one. Okay. I thought it was that one in that <laughs> in this really rough part of town, right. and it was that, and it's not. There are twenty nine locations, twenty nine of the uh, the Lisa's fried chicken and seafood. So if you if you don't have a Lisa's chicken and seafood near you, this every single one describe of them, this place. I'm assuming they all look the same. Oh yeah, okay. Yeah. They none of the signs work appropriately. No, they all of the awnings are faded. Yeah, let let me put it in context. They are uniquely positioned, usually between like a muffler shop and a uh, and a wig store, or a uh, <laughs> a pawn shop and a liquor store. They're never in a good no. It's not next to the Pottery Barn. No, no, it's uh, they're they're rough. They're no, uh, you're not going from Whole Foods to Lisa's Chicken, right? So I pulled up some reviews. Of the Lisa's chicken ragging on Lisa, <laughs> Lisa's chicken and seafood. The first review I saw was, "Don't let the location scare you." <laughs> <laughs> and you have to say that. That's that, so. If you've never seen one, now you've seen it in your now, mind. Now you know. Uh, you ready? The, the, so that's how the first one started. The second one started. This location has always been my go-to spot for good fried chicken. However, this past Sunday night. While placing order, I saw a worker handling chicken wearing flip flops. <laughs> <laughs> it is Lisa's chicken and seafood is the Waffle House of chicken, and seafood. of chicken and seafood. Yeah. Okay. But not as good as Waffle House. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know why this person felt compelled to write a write a review mentioning the flip flops. If you walk into a chicken a Lisa's chicken I, and seafood. Can't. You've got to be expecting that there were flip flops. No, that's got to come with the territory. The thing that we were talking about last night is like, did they, they have to, they have to consciously decide to not improve the quality or the service or the cleanliness. They have to consciously decide. And, um, it's like almost, it's almost so much that if they did improve it wouldn't people wouldn't be, go there. It wouldn't yeah. be like when McDonald's did their Angus burgers and people were like, shut the, shut up. You're not making good food now. You're not making good food. <laughs> Don't start now. Doing? Yeah, come on. Make me a crappy burger and give it to me. Let's go. I think you made the comment that they're not going to fix up the front of the store. They're not trying to get robbed or something. Yeah, they're, not trying. <laughs> Just, they're looking rough. They're like, trying to now, having, go for us. Having said that, thing. I've never stepped foot in one. But after all of my research, people just rave on this. I kind of want to go. I kind of want to. You know what? 
Here's the thing that I do respect about them. Having, I've never tried their chicken. I've never been in their restaurant. Um, I drive by as quickly as I can. Is that they don't give a fuck. <laughs> they really don't give a fuck. I didn't, I didn't read you the third comment, which said it was pet friendly. <laughs> it's an indoor, it's an indoor restaurant. <laughs> they probably have live chickens Sorry. in the back. Our guest today is an expert on not giving a fuck. You may remember Sarah Knight from episode 77, Deciding Not to Give a Fuck, where we discuss boundaries, to-do list management, and building habits that serve you and breaking the ones that don't. Today, we had her back on the show to talk about something we've all experienced, growing the fuck up. Sarah's known as the anti-guru for her profane approach to giving practical life advice. She graduated from Harvard and worked for 15 years as top book editor in New York City. In 2015, she left corporate publishing to go freelance, moved to the Dominican Republic, and her fucks given guides have been published in 31 languages and appeared on bestseller lists all over the world with 3 million copies printed. Her acclaimed series of self-help books includes the runway hit, Runaway Hits, Calm the Fuck Down, Get Your Shit Together, and her latest book, Grow the Fuck Up. She hosts the popular podcast, No Fucks Given. Today, she was on our podcast. We really got into what it means to be an adult, why you should care about being an adult, and how to become a more responsible person. Uh, she's witty. She's funny. She's a great writer. So check out her book. If you don't order it on Amazon before the show, by the end of the show, you definitely will. Stick around, learn something, laugh a little bit. I'm Sanger Smith with my dad, Sean Smith. This is Decidedly. I have to ask you about something that Sean and I were BS and we were just talking about this before you came on. So okay. I was on I was on Instagram and okay. I see this guy and he says, You know how I make two hundred twenty thousand dollars per month in my coaching business? Well, I didn't get there by and then he lists out all of the things that you would think you would need to do, right? Okay. I didn't get there by calling leads and setting appointments. Getting getting doing ads <laughs> and Facebook and YouTube and blah blah blah. You know, I got there by, and then of course he's selling you his trick or whatever. And so my, my thought is if I figured out how to make, which I have it, $220,000 per month doing basically no work, <laughs> I'm keeping that a secret. Yeah. I'm keeping that under wraps. <laughs> That's for me. Here's the thing. I wouldn't be on Instagram. I'd be on my yacht. You know, right. like, yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, when we took a look at this guy and there's no chance he's making uh, 220,000. Yeah. Yeah, there is actually just a big article in the New York Times about how passive income is not uh, is not everything that the the Internet wants you to believe it is. Um, it's pretty interesting because a lot of people think they can just kind of magically generate hundreds of thousands of dollars a month and not have to do anything. And it just doesn't work that way. I see those all the time. They, they'll send me stuff. They're like, you know, here's how you use a. Uh, you know, chat GPT to uh, write content and then uh, this other app will uh, will post it and you can just sell books, you know, all the, you know, yeah. whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, it's like, no, I don't, I don't think it's a, That's so offensive. That's yeah. what it is. <laughs> you know what? As an author, a part of you is probably thinking, give it a shot. <laughs> Go yeah, for I'd it. Love, I'd love to see what you come up with. Yeah. Sure, yeah. Get five stars on Amazon. That chat GPT book will really, you know, I'm sure it'll take off. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The idea with passive income, right? Uh, there's this allure to the story, and this is across all aspects of life. Of You can get all the rewards with none of the work, right? You get this magic uh, weight loss pill. It will solve all your problems. Well, you can get passive income. You don't have to do anything. Investment returns with no risk. Yeah, investment returns with no risk. And it's the thing with passive income is it's it's either not that much income or it's hardly passive. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah that, that was actually the point behind this article. And they, they you know, t spoke to a few entrepreneurs and people who were very candid about the fact that they tried to start a business and thought that it was going to be this amazing, you know, passive income thing. And they were like, uh, this is so much work. I can't do it. Like, I, it's too much work. And then other people who were like, yeah, it was passive income of $9 a month. Like, <laughs> yeah, it know. was one coffee a week. <laughs> yeah. It was great. 
So, so your position is that uh, there's not an AI uh, app that's going to be able to write the next Shape Your Life Up book? I that, mean, uh, you know, never say never. Uh, I certainly fear <laughs> our robot overlords, but I don't think they're quite there yet. When did you write your first book? Uh, the first book came out in December of 2015. Was that before you moved to Dominican Republic or were you still in New York? It was basically concurrent. So I had been writing it. It came out in December. We moved in January of 2016 to the DR. It's a very oh, busy wow. time. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot of stress all at once. Do you think it's easier to write in the environment that you're in now versus being in New York City? I really don't. Um, I'm, I have a pretty strict, like get into my own little zone and and do my work so I can kind of do that anywhere like as long as I can have quiet and focus it doesn't really matter where I am uh the only thing is that if I when I was in New York writing the first book uh you know my husband was working from home at the same time and so it just was a little bit like slightly distracting to to have somebody that I wanted to talk to around as opposed to you know being able to ignore coworkers that I didn't want to talk to when I was working in an office. Um, so, you know, but it really, it doesn't make that much of a difference to me. What caused you to want to write that first book? Well, that was, you know, out of, out of desperation. I was having, I was peaking in my career at the time as a book editor, and I wanted very much to keep doing that for the rest of my career. I thought that was my path, uh, but I was incredibly panicking and, and depressed and just having kind of a mental health crisis at the time. And I thought I went through all of the things, you know, what is it about my life that is causing these these issues to come to the surface? And I finally realized that it was my job and that it was that I didn't want to work for a corporation. I didn't want to have a boss. I wanted to work for myself. I wanted to make my own decisions, take my own risks, be responsible for them if they didn't pan out um, and basically be able to show up every day as as myself instead of having to kind of, you know, be a little bit more subdued in an office setting. I'm sure you can tell from the titles of my books that I'm not a particularly subdued person. Um, and, you know, it wasn't really appropriate in the in the corporate workplace that I was in. So <laughs> uh, so that was kind of the, the impetus behind quitting my job, uh, having the idea for the first book, The Life-Changing Magic of Not Giving a Fuck. Um, and once I wrote that and it came out into the world and it started to take off and it was a slow burn, you know, it wasn't a bestseller right away. It was like one of those things that somebody read it and told their friend and somebody read it and told their friend, I did a couple interviews and a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And like months later, it really took hold. Uh, and by then I was living in the Dominican Republic. I, you know, was asked to consider the idea of writing a follow-up and I thought, well, what more do I have to say? And now we're... We're uh, six books in, so the new one's coming out April 4th. Wow. It's so cool to experience a organic growth like that. When I go online, I like always see someone that fools me with their, like they, they've got, you know, 250,000 followers or whatever, and it looks like they're really prolific and they have this you know, audience that they've built up and then you dig into it and you're like, oh, they got like 24 likes on this most recent post. Like, <laughs> Nobody actually cares, but they, they've like made it look like they have an audience or that they've got this organic following and that they don't. And that's something I think about a lot actually, because it's been such a, I mean, I don't want to call it a struggle, but it has been an ongoing challenge to build a profile, you know, to build a profile on social media, to get visitors to my website, to get people to listen to my podcast and course to buy the books and often when I'm sitting there going you know geez like I'm at I don't know the 35,000 Instagram followers on one of these accounts and and I have to remember the days when I had 10 you know I have yeah. to remember that like I did this and even if I wish it was 200,000 these people are engaged they're commenting they're liking and it's not this kind of smoke and mirrors like I definitely can see how yeah, you're not faking it I'm now I'm in the process of TikTok, which is a whole new, whole new world. <laughs> You're um, braver than me. And, you know, I've, I've done it, put myself out there, getting kind of con consistent number of views. And like it's not, you know, it's like 300 to 600, depending on how, I don't know, how good the video is or something. And everyone's smiling 1,500. I'm like, oh, that one, people like that one. Well, if what, what people who don't, you know, aren't involved in the back end of this stuff don't probably know is that 
you can boost video. So for example, my book publisher can go in and say, um, you know, I'm going to apply a spend, you know, I don't know how much it is, but, but yeah. you know, a few cents of view or something and see if I can get this out in front of more eyeballs. And so they've done that on one post and it got like 115,000 views, but it wasn't getting people commenting. It was clearly just TikTok pushes it to your feed. The minute the video starts, it counts as a view, but that person isn't necessarily engaged with it because they're not your audience. Whereas I happened to do one video that was, I guess, kind of controversial and it got 250,000 organic views, no boost from my publisher, but like tons of people commenting and partly because half of them really disagreed with me. Internet feeds in controversy, but it it was a big lesson to me when I saw the one that they boosted go really high in the views, but nobody was engaging with it. And I think that's yeah. where you're getting some of those false, um, some of those, you know, uh, those profiles out there that seem like they have a lot behind them, but they're probably paying for views or you yeah, know, yeah they're doing something weird but, yeah they're doing something weird it, i think it's it, it like cuts through you can kind of tell when something gets pushed to you you know on on instagram ads for example there's it, it'll say like sponsored and then there are tiktok ads and it says you know add or they'll do like hashtag ad um <laughs> but that's not all of the ones that are boosted so there's like there's like the ads and then there's the boost and Sometimes the boosts don't come clearly as an ad, um, but right. it'll be like, "Oh, recommended for you." It's like this. Yeah. I don't care about this, you know? How did I get? Yeah. How did I get this recommended to me? And I think that's what it is. It's like you can kind of sniff it out as a user when you go, "I don't want this." Like, why are you presenting me with this nonsense? Yeah, it's like you know, every once in a while, I order a baby shower gift for somebody, yeah. and then I just get assaulted with you know emails from the Babies R Us and Pottery Barn Baby and. Bye bye, baby. And I'm like, I, I, I'm 44. I have no children. I'm never going to read my metadata, please. I am, I, I am not, I am not your target audience. I buy a, a baby gift <laughs> once every three years. I buy a baby gift. So, yeah, yeah. We were talking with Mike Pitchy a while back, and uh, he's a film producer, and he he told us he goes, yeah, I'll intentionally post people who write me and just want to. You know, negative talk, views. negative review my my film. They're like, oh, this film is garbage. And he'll just post it, and he just, <laughs> just people interact with it. He gets way more engagement on the negative review post than when he posts positive review, reviews. So he'll post one, and it'll be like, it's someone gave him five stars, said it was the best movie they ever watched. Nobody likes it, and then he posts some guy who goes, fuck you for your movie. <laughs> it's like everybody likes it. <laughs> Yeah, I, I do that sometimes. I put people on blast in my Instagram stories because every once in a while I get somebody who like tags me in a bad review. And I'm like, don't tag me. I don't need to see that. You know, or sometimes people will send, I would say 95% of the interaction that I get, at least on Instagram where people seem friendlier, is um is positive. But every once in a while, somebody will just reach out to me to tell me I suck. And, you know, or they'll say like, I, you know, I bought your book at the airport at LAX and after 10 pages, I knew it was garbage, so I put it in the trash can where it belongs, oh, and I'll geez. just repost it, and I'll be like, I got royalties on that sale, so thanks. And, that, and that's when people in my feed get all excited about, like, standing up for me and also, like, telling me that I'm great and not to worry. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not asking you to tell me how great I am, but it's hilarious that it really yeah. causes people to want to engage. And it's also, like, kind of, like I say, it's hilarious. It's actually kind of dangerous and disturbing that that is how you get engagement on social media but it also just gives me pleasure to put people on blast sometimes because yeah. i'm like you came for me you know it's you so around and now you're gonna find out yeah good for you i mean it's like you the only way to think about it is oh this is hilarious i've really i ruined someone's day and i made a few bucks too <laughs> what a, what a, what a yeah. great one i think like, there's this wall between us and physically when we're on the internet there's there's no longer this threat that a physical altercation could occur, right? If we're sitting across from the dinner table from one another and we're insulting each other like people do online, it's gonna people are gonna start throwing stuff. You know, you're gonna, yeah. we're gonna start spilling wine on each other. We're gonna start pushing and shoving. And, How you get taken out of the will? Yeah, like that's there's this there's this threat that things could get physical, and on the internet that's removed, and so people think there are no rules. It's like the same thing happens, I think, in road rage is. There's more of a threat of physical violence in, in when you're in a car, right? You know you could get out of the car and they could get out of the car. But when you're both in the car, there's these walls. 
And <laughs> so you kind of dissociate from their existence a little bit. And mm-hmm. and people will buck up and they'll say things. And it's like, if the window comes down, all of a sudden they're nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, I don't want to be on the receiving end of a somebody no. deciding to sideswipe me at 65 miles an hour no, because no. I yelled at them I mean, out the window. You, you spent a lot of the, the work that you've done writing about boundaries and, and mm-hmm. those walls and things like that. Did you find that when you're writing that there were boundaries you had to establish for yourself or things that crept into your personal life that you were writing? Here's my advice. Then you go, oh, shit, I need to take this advice myself. Yeah, uh, actually, with the new book, uh, which is called Grow the Fuck Up, How to Be an Adult and Get Treated Like One, there's three pillars of adulting that I talk about. It's maturity, responsibility, and accountability. And maturity is more behavior-oriented. You know, it's self-awareness and self-control. And responsibility is more action-oriented. You know, doing what you said you were going to do when you said you were going to do it. Being reliable and dependable, uh, taking initiative. Accountability combines both. And that's taking responsibility for those actions and behavior, right? And admitting when you're wrong and accepting criticism and apologizing and cleaning up your mess. Um, and that's the part that I really, as I was writing the book, was realizing, like, I'm I'm pretty fucking adult. Like, I'm a good, I have a, a, a good basis of expertise in which to tell other people, you know, how they could improve their lives by acting more like a grown up. But accountability is definitely my weaker area because boy, do I not like to be told that I'm wrong. And boy, do I not like to admit it when I messed up. And so I kind of was writing that part of the book, realizing like what what it is that makes me uncomfortable about taking criticism and what kind of reaction it gets out of me and how I talk myself down is how I'm you know trying to show other people how to do that in in the book. But like, I definitely was kind of working on that part and thinking to myself, huh, I could, I could use some, <laughs> could use some improvement here. Do, yeah. do you just, do you deny that it happened or do you absorb it? Like if somebody gives you, let's say not so great feedback, how do you react to it? Well, so that's it. it like I, what I was realizing when I was writing is that one of the reasons one might have a negative reaction to that is just because it, no matter how well-intentioned criticism can feel like, you being told you're not good enough, you are a failure, you are bad, you know, and some people can just let it roll off their backs and I congratulate those people. Um, It's no coincidence that I spent most of my career as an editor where it was my job to tell other people how to improve their work um, and then not get, you know, the feedback myself. And now that I'm a writer, I'm on the end of of that, you know, that kind of constructive criticism all the time. But I think that it's... um, it, it's kind of a, a sliding scale, right? It starts with, okay, here's how you deal with constructive criticism and here's how you can not feel personally attacked by it. And you can kind of pause and take it in and remember that two things can be true at the same time. You know, you could have done a very good job on your first draft of something and there could still be room for improvement. And like understanding that to talk yourself down from that immediate reaction. Um, And then there's like, you know, when you've really messed up and like you are being confronted by somebody saying like, you did do a bad thing. You did disappoint me. You did fail at this. And having to separate the emotional reaction of that like shame or or sadness or, um, you know, or fear in yourself with, okay, how am I going to how am I going to learn from this and how am I going to repair it? How am I going to do better next time? How am I going to fix the mess I made? Um, and so a lot of all in all of my books, but particularly in Grow the Fuck Up, I do combine that uh, the emotional reaction, that self-awareness with then taking action to be responsible and to hold yourself accountable. So it's kind of a, a two step process of like, but I, I think it's easier, certainly if you've asked for it. You know, I, I did some uh, some work the other day and, and had asked Sanger for feedback on it. And what I was what I was wanting was him to hand me the work back and go, wow, this is, this is really good. This is the best, this is the best stuff I've ever seen. And that's not what happened. Um, but it was, it was really good because I was like, well, I, I asked for this, you know, this is mm-hmm. what I'm wanting. I'm wanting this feedback. And he was providing me some constructive criticism of how I could make it better. And it was, it was really helpful, but I, I think it's easy 
for us to get reactive when somebody's saying, hey, you know, what you did wasn't perfect, or here's another perspective, to to throw up a defensive wall so that you don't have to get self-aware. You don't have to, you know, look inside and go, well, you know, maybe, maybe there are some things I need to fix. It's easy to just discount that. I know yeah, people in my I mean, life who do that. That's like work, you know, that's emotional work that you have to do. And the difference, there's there's kind of a, um, a evolution in my book but from actual baby, you know, an actual baby who has no life experience, no responsibilities, hasn't learned how to behave or misbehave yet. And then you've got big fucking babies who are people like like us who've had all the time in the world to learn how to do things properly and to be better and just won't, just don't want to make the effort. And then you've got your theoretical grownups where we're like, we want it. We want to do well, but we just aren't, you know, always that good at everything. And then the total fucking grownups who are the kind who can take that criticism and say, I did ask for that. And and it doesn't make me feel bad. And I'm going to take those suggestions and I'm going to move on. Um, and, you know, for me, I think that it's, you know, in keeping with the theme of, of your podcast, it is about making the decision on the front end to say, I am going to walk into this and I am going to act like an adult and I am going to, I'm not going to throw a tantrum and I'm not going to say, you know, you're wrong and didn't just, you know, not take any of that advice and just stomp off and, and do it my way. You know, I'm going to decide to take it in, think about it, to not be ridiculously reactive and then move forward. Um, and a lot of the time, you know, when people are, and we've talked about this before, uh, you know, when, when people do something kind of rash or uh, or they get themselves into a bad situation, it's because they didn't just take 30 seconds, two minutes, 10 minutes to pause and decide on a better path. You know, they just allowed themselves to be reactive. And the decision making is is not reactive. It's proactive. And um, and so I think that, you know, everybody benefits from being able to just take a little bit of time, make better decisions think about the outcomes, go for the best one. <laughs> and yeah. that's, uh, you know, I mean, that's just, to me, it seems like common sense, but I think a lot of people just aren't doing it because they're not, they're just not thinking it through. Yeah. I, I think if you're not getting that feedback and it, it, not just getting it, but listening to it and internalizing it and becoming self-aware, your own decision-making framework is cloudy. Your ability to make good decisions particularly if you're in a leadership position, if you can't lead yourself by taking feedback, evaluating that and saying, what can I learn from this? How can I make a decision to improve? Your ability to do that for others is is greatly diminished over if you're elevating that. Do you think that, I mean, there's got to be another way to become self-aware other than getting feedback and asking for feedback. What do you think allowed you to become self-aware other than people telling you what your problems are. Yeah, I mean, it starts it starts with you. And uh, I have a little three-step method in the book, and I call it um, I call it the how, why, what method. How am I feeling? Why am I feeling that way? What can I do about it? Um, and you know, my point is that you can't go forward in this life and interact with other people and succeed professionally and thrive personally if you aren't first honest with yourself. And each of the chapters in the book is kind of a riff on something a parent might say. And this one is, um, is do you have something to tell me? Uh, which is really about, you know, be honest. Like, what'd you do? What, what are you up to in there? Um, and you have to really ask it of yourself. You have to be like, what is going on? What am I feeling? You know, it's not just I'm feeling anxious. It's am I afraid? Am I sad? Yeah. Am I resentful? Am I nervous about something? Okay, why am I feeling this way? What, it, what made me feel this way? And then what can I do to change it? Or what can I do to move forward? And that self-awareness is something that, um, you know, a lot of people just don't know any better to cultivate in themselves. Like I said, they're ruled by, by reacting, you know, and not by yeah. really reflecting. And that's something that is so easy to do. If somebody just tells you, if, if Sarah Knight tells you how to do it in the pages of these books, it's not hard. It really isn't. If you just, if somebody just says, hey, next time you're feeling a certain way, ask yourself, how am I feeling? 
why am I feeling this way and what can I do about it? It's just, it's a really simple way to get that, to get to that point of self-reflection. And then you're arming yourself with so much more capacity to get past it, get over it, change it, you know, and get to a better place. I just think it's, it's kind of, it's kind of the key to everything, self-awareness. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. And it's, it, it is easy. I think it takes some work to be able to do it effectively. I have a good friend of mine and we, he was going through some stuff and I asked him, I said, well, how does that, how are you feeling right now? And he goes, just, you know, just busy. I'm like, dude, busy's not a feeling. Nope, it sure isn't. <laughs> you know? And so let's try again. And I finally got him to, you know, just think, you know, okay, well, he was feeling overwhelmed and that made him feel stressed and that made him feel disappointed. Himself. And so we really got to a good place. I was like, why is, why are you feeling that way? And explore it kind of like what you were saying, you know, how, how are you feeling and why are you feeling that way? And then, you know, the, the big question is, what do you do about it? Do you find that, when you get to that point, what are you going to do about it? To me, that seems like the most difficult part because then you have a decision to make to say, not only what am I going to do about it, but then I have to do it. I mean, it, I actually think it's harder to get to the point of how am I feeling? I think that you're right yeah. uh, in the sense that I maybe shouldn't use the word easy. What I mean is it's simple. It's, simple, it's like yeah. it's a simple question to ask yourself. It might be harder yes. for one or the other of us to kind of really be willing to confront those feelings and figure out what's going on. Um, also, P.S., there's a mosquito buzzing around my head right now, so if I whack at the screen, it's don't take it personally. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you Thank for clarifying. Um, Thank you. But when you get to that, to that third step of what am I going to do about it, and you do have some decisions to make, one of the tricks that I talk about in Grow the Fuck Up is just imagine the worst case scenario. Write it down. You know, if you're having trouble making a decision, What's the worst that could happen? Realistically, not you can't say like, what if an asteroid falls on me while I, yeah. you know, because I agreed to do this, this solo concert in front of 500 people. That's not realistic. But like, what's the worst that could happen? You know, it, because you agreed to do this solo concert in front of 500 people, you know, maybe you forget the lyrics. That's, that's like the worst thing that could happen. And in, and in the end, are you going to, are you going to evaporate? Are you going to die? Gonna, yeah. <laughs> somebody going to die? You know? Maybe you'll get heckled. Maybe somebody will post a one-star review and like then your life will go on. It will. So I think that it's really useful when you're trying to make a decision. For me, anyway, it's useful is to go to the go to the very work. What's the worst that could happen? And lots of the time, it's just not that bad. Like yeah. you will realize that the thing that's holding you back from pressing go on whatever decision you're making, whether it's somebody's reaction to your decision or you might fail at the thing that you're going to try to do or even if it's like you know you're trying to decide where to have the the party for your parents 50th yeah. rehearsal dinner and your siblings are arguing about it and you're and you're like i'm just going to take some initiative and i'm going to decide and what if the place sucks well nobody else is making the decision and if anybody else had stepped up to make the decision, they would have looked at the reviews, they would have gotten recommendations, they would have gone to the website, and they probably yeah. would have made the same decision you did because it looked good, you know? And if it wasn't good, this isn't your fault. And so that's what I would say to people when they're getting to the point of, okay, what can I do about it? When you're trying to make those decisions, think about the worst that could realistically happen. It's probably not that bad. And then, you know, it's it's easier to kind of press forward when you can demystify and, and just sort of defang these outcomes when you look at them, literally write them down. I'm a big fan of writing things down and confront it and go, that's not the end of the world. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and do this thing now. Yeah, it's, you know, it's a different version of, you know, not awfulizing. There, there was somebody I used to work with that would awfulize everything. And every time we would go, say, all right, we, we're going to do this ad campaign or whatever, he goes, you know, you know, if it doesn't work, we're not getting any clients. If we don't get any clients, you know, we won't make money. If we don't make money, we... You know, we're all going to die. <laughs> you know, every, yeah. Everything would end with, and we're all going to die, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so I just have to stop you because seriously, what is the worst that can happen? Yeah. It's funny how, yeah. um, how we do that. I'll, I'll talk to clients about money decisions and, and, you know, I I'll, might ask them what's holding you back from this or what's the worst that could happen or some variation of, you know, how bad can this get? Right? Why are we so scared right now? Well, I mean, geez, you know, we could have total economic collapse. And they go, then who gives a shit? Like if yeah. we have total, then whatever you did with your money doesn't matter. If you're where we have 3000% inflation saying, well, okay, then, then I guess no matter what stock you bought, it sucks. 
You have bigger problems. I remember talking to a client three years ago about this. Well, I guess it was more like January of 2020. And she said to me, well, how is this virus going to impact the stock market? And at the time, before anyone in the U.S. even had the virus, I was like, uh, look, I mean, if the virus impacts the stock market, we've got bigger problems. Uh, and a few months later, she's talking to me and goes, you know what? Way back then, you told me if the virus impacts the stock market, we've got bigger problems. And I said, yeah, you know, you're right. Now I'm wearing a mask. You know, yeah. Standing yeah. Out. <laughs> yeah. I often say to my husband, it's too bad because when I'm right, it usually means that something bad happened because I'm very much of like a pragmatist in that way. And I'll be like, well, this might happen. And when it does, it's not fun to be right. Um, but I do think also that, you know, the worst decision is no decision, right? If you're in that, 100% kind of, agree. they call it analysis paralysis uh-huh. and you can't decide, you know, I've, I've been accepted to four different schools and I just don't know, am I, am I going to choose the right one? Like this, these are the pros, these are the cons. And what if I pick the wrong one and my life is a sham and, you know, it turns out that I should have, it's like you, you don't get an alternate universe to go and see what is going to happen in each of these scenarios if you choose, yeah. you know, University of Georgia or University of Pennsylvania. Like, you're just not going to know. And if you don't make a decision, then you never get to go to college. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah I might, it's almost better to pick based on an arbitrary criteria than to not decide. Pick, pick one, flip a coin. Oh, but that seems crazy. It's such a big decision. Well, it's better than you sitting here writhing indefinitely. Well, a lot of people don't see not making a decision as a decision and it really is you know it's it's a decision but it, it's it's a decision based on fear and it may not be the best decision so make a decision based on some you know some forward acting momentum and motivation that makes some sense rather than just the default decision of not doing anything which could be could be bad yeah and yeah. also have confidence in in your priorities and your values you know if if we're looking at the, you know, choosing a place to go to school, first of all, it's, you know, it's wonderful that you have this opportunity. Um, and you know what's important to you. Now, what's important to you when you're 18 might not turn out to be the same thing that's important to you when you're 38, but join the club. At the time when you're making you would, the decision. You would hope not, right? <laughs> at the time when you're making your decision, you know, if you have three or four kind of, you know, equal, sort of seemingly equal on paper options, and you know that you really want to be in a big city. And, you know, and that you don't want to be in a rural place or you don't want to be, you know, like, so pick the city one. Like, it's okay for you to say, this is what's important to me. Yeah. I remember when I was um, going through this now, 20 with something years ago, uh, I went and visited one particular school and I, and I came back and I said, I, I don't like it. The, the sky's too close. And my father was like, what are you talking about? I was like, I didn't like it. I felt really, I felt like the, <laughs> the, the sky was really close. close. Like, I felt really like pinned in and he was like like what are you and I was like whatever the point is I didn't like it I didn't like it I can't imagine spending four years there I don't want to go there um and you know it sounded ridiculous to him but it was meaningful to me and you know it's you have to take these data points and these personal values and I think in our last episode we talked a lot about prioritizing and I was saying how I like to prioritize by urgency to get things done that are the most urgent because otherwise it's easy to just kind of do the things that mm-hmm. seem more fun or do the things that seem easier. And I talk about prioritizing in all of my books, but in the case of Grow the Fuck Up, it's really about prioritizing like your values and deciding who you are, you know, and it's okay to want something and it's okay to not like something and it's okay to use those likes and wants to, you know, input into your own personal brain computer and make your decisions based on them it's okay yeah. to live a value-driven life and it, and your values don't have to be the same as other people's. it's it's okay and and it's necessary to live the best version of your life to to yeah. fully express who you are by living out your values that that's that's how you find purpose when yeah. whenever i get stuck in decisions which is not very often um i now have a little trick that sean showed me so the last time i got stuck with the decision that i couldn't make and it was just going back and forth was on the logo for my company i was like i have two great options i don't know which one to pick and it was taking me way longer than necessary to pick an option so we sat down do you remember what you did 
yeah, he, I do. He pulled out a <laughs> pulled out a coin and he said, "All right, listen, I got a coin in my hands. You're gonna call it. Okay, heads is the first logo, tails is the second logo. Now, this is actually what you're gonna do. You can't take it back. Okay, no matter what it lands on, that's the logo of your company. Do you understand? And I was like, "All right, okay. Well, we're gonna get it done." In the air, he throws it. It lands. It goes. It's heads. So I go. Fuck it. No, we're doing tails. Like you know, yep. I was like, no. And I instantly knew. I instantly mm-hmm. knew. And I just did that last week with a friend of mine. I was like, Hey, you want to go? The thing is, you know, in the air, you know when it's. You know as soon as in it the air, you know. something yeah. that you have to recognize the reality. I did that just last weekend with. Uh, where do you want to go out to eat <laughs> with a friend? I do this frequently with my husband on where you want to go out to eat he'll be like we could do this we could do that we could do this we could do that and i'll be like you decide and he'll be like okay this and i'm like nope that. <laughs> it's like i knew you had an opinion yeah. yeah you have an opinion once you're forced to face the reality uh-huh. it's like sometimes it's a great trick it's hard to vi- maybe it's hard to visualize the reality when when we're when we haven't decided right? you haven't haven't really chosen to visualize it and that's what's preventing you from being confident in the decision. I, I think there's always those moments that you look back on. You say, well, that's when I had to make that decision, you know, like the coin flip. That's when I know. I was, you know, looking at the the title of your book, Sarah, I, I started thinking, well, you know, when did I know I was a grown up? You know, when did it, you know, do I have a defining moment when I thought, okay, I'm a, I'm a grown up? And I, and I had an answer. I remember calling my friend Gene. It, this is the first, the first house I bought. And I, and I called him and I said, dude, and, and I'm, you know, I don't know, I'm in my mid twenties. And I said, dude, I think I'm a grown up." And he goes, what, what, what do you mean? I said, I'm sitting here in a house that I bought and there's a guy outside mowing my yard <laughs> for me <laughs> that I'm paying. I'm like, I've made it. <laughs> this, is, this is all I took. <laughs> That's a moment. It was a moment. Did you have moments like that, that you were reflecting on as you were writing that you were like, oh, okay, this is this was important for me. That like I, I remember when I was a grown like, up, I've, I've made it here. <laughs> I've made it. Yeah, I mean, you know, in particular, that homeownership thing is is a big one, and you know, not everybody's gotten there yet, and and maybe won't get there yet. But I just remember being way more nervous the day I signed my first mortgage agreement than the day I got married. Like, I was like, I have oh, yeah, marriage, like it's a permanent thing that we're doing it no problem happy about that and when i was like signing my name on a giant loan from a bank i was like this is this is so adult Um, my and my husband who uh you know just has a different temperament than i do he was like it's just math he's like have you ever not paid your rent i said nope he's like it's just we did the math and the mortgage payment is less than the rent so if if you've never not paid your rent then you're probably gonna be fine and you have to worry about it i was like oh that's a very good point uh, but I did feel very adult that day, for sure. Um, I also think that, you know, there's there's adult stuff that isn't the traditional, you know, buying a house or having a kid of your own or something like that, those, those traditional societal markers. But just like when you solve a problem for yourself, um, and I write in the book a lot about being resourceful and taking initiative and like not waiting around for somebody else to do it for you. Like when you're a kid, you, you wait around for your parents to do stuff for you because you don't know how to do them yet. Now you haven't, you haven't developed those skills, but now that you have them, it can just feel so satisfying to use them. And, you know, it's the kind of thing where the more resourceful you are, the, the better you are at getting things done and presenting the finished product to, you know, to your colleagues or to your partner. Um, then the more trust and respect those people will have for you and the and the more they'll stay off your case you know when you're when you're working on something because they're like i can depend on her you know she's gonna get that done because she's resourceful and reliable and Man. she'll she'll figure it out and i don't have to kind of hover over her and and poke her and you know and drive her crazy and these are the benefits of, of acting like an adult you know it's like some people are going to look at it as as work and they're going to look at it as an overwhelming amount of responsibility they're going to say i don't want to um, but if you actually accept that responsibility into your life, you can make good things happen for yourself because everybody wants an adult on their side. You know, I want to live in a world full of people who are dependable and self-aware and who can take initiative, who can apologize for their mistakes. Like who doesn't want to live in that world? So, 
you know, the effort that we put in to doing that and deciding that, you know, it's worth it really comes back tenfold. Yeah. You know, I think most parents don't look at their kids and consider them grown up until those kids have kids. I think, you know, they always think, mm. you, you know, it's that, yeah, there's that defining moment. I think I remember when I realized that my dad considered me an adult, a big purchase I was considering. And I talked to him, I said, you know, Hey, so I'm, you know, this is a lot of money. I'm thinking about doing this. And he's just like, no, it's your money. I mean, do you know, what do you want to do? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, which was super not helpful at all, but, uh, was, wasn't great advice, but it, but it caught, it was a you defining realize, moment. Realized that it was absolutely not his problem. He didn't care. Right. If you screwed it up. It was like not going to matter. Exactly. <laughs> he had no ownership or connection to it. He's like, oh, I don't know, you know, whatever you want, and, you know, no skin off my nose. I mean, basically. Okay. And I was like, oh, okay. And it caused me though to reevaluate that decision so much differently. I'm like, oh, I don't, I'm not a kid. You know, nobody's going to come bail me out. This is my uh-huh. decision that I've got to grow up and take ownership of. And so it was interesting that this, this crappy advice turned out to really be defining for me and turned out to be good advice in the, in a weird way. I like how you focus on responsibility so much, Sarah. Um, I think that's a real it's such an integral component of living a purposeful life. I think, you know, to have purpose and to, to, to find that purpose means to be responsible to something, right? Even if you're responsible to yourself and for yourself, you, you've got to be responsible to find purpose and people who want to have a life of no responsibility at all. Their biggest complaint with that lifestyle is "Ah, I've got no purpose. I see it all the time with people who retire and they go, Oh man, back in the day when I had and had purpose and I had Mm -hmm. some reason to get up every morning. And when that's missing, when that responsibility is missing, it's a, it's a big, big problem. And I think that like, you know, that you don't have to do the traditional societal steps to become an adult, get married, have kids, buy a house to be an adult. You don't have to do those things. It's not in the cards for everyone, but we have to understand why those are the traditional steps. And they're the traditional steps because they all involve a great degree of responsibility. I mean, owning a home is, it's, you're responsible for a really important thing. Getting married, you're responsible to and for another person. Having children, you're responsible for these other, they, they're going to die without you. Well, it's a big <laughs> thing of responsibility. So I, I think like to, re, there's, there's some people who, yes, will say, you know, if you're not doing those things, you're, you're not, you know, really living, you, you have to go through the normal steps. And I don't agree with that, but there are other people who reject it entirely. And so I'm not going to do any of these things there and they're worthless steps in life period. So I reject them. Well, before you reject them, recognize that, recognize what they represented and try to find that somewhere else in your life. Yeah. And, you know, it's it all kind of ties into being responsible, taking responsibility, accepting, like you were saying, nobody's going to bail me out. Like I have to kind of take on the responsibility of these decisions that I'm making. Um, And when you, you know, if you are somebody who says, you know, I just don't want to have to do anything. I don't want to I don't I don't subscribe to any of those societal, you know, uh, adulting points that we just talked about. And I want to just sit back and let everybody else make the decisions and let everybody else do everything for me and barely lift a finger. Um, For a while, might that might that seem like a liberating way of life? I I suppose it might. But eventually you're going to make your life very small because most people don't really want to spend time with and don't really respect somebody who is essentially you know, announcing to the world, I'm lazy. I don't care about anything. It's not even like I'm saying you have to go and be, you know, the the top salesman at your company. Like, but just like the attitude of I reject all responsibility is not an appealing attitude. Um, and it's going to make you less appealing to people. And it's going to provide you with fewer opportunities. And at some point, I do think that you will sit back and go, huh. Maybe, maybe I missed out, you know, by being so, by being in the parlance of my book, a big fucking baby. 
Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so it's worth it also, like I said earlier, to figure out what your what your values are and to, you know, put your efforts at being responsible onto those. It doesn't have to be the same values that other people have. But like like you said, have a purpose because that's attractive in a person. You know, it's those are the people that I want to that I want to be my friends and my coworkers and that I want to entrust with the responsibility for my career. And, you know, I I want people who, you know, are comfortable with the idea of both being responsible, doing what they said they were going to do when they said they were going to do it, but taking on responsibility and, and you know, realizing that we're not just eight-year-olds anymore who can yeah. run around and, and not have any consequences. So how are you doing that in your life? Obviously, you're responsible for things like, I mean, writing a book requires a lot of discipline and you're responsible to at least the idea of the project, right? Um, if I was living in the Dominican Republic, I feel like I would have a harder time being a responsible person because the temptation of chilling out on the beach is like so ripe and so right there. Yeah. I mean, the issue is that once you live here, you have it available all the time. So it doesn't feel, it's like you will, there, there certainly is an adjustment period where you're like, oh my God, this is amazing. I never want to be inside again. I want to be outside in the sun, you know, on the beach all day. But like when it's available all the time, I don't, I don't miss it when I have to, you know, focus mm. on my work and that because I know it's there for me. Um, it's not like it's a two week vacation where I only have 14 days. So I have to spend all of them doing <laughs> You got to go on the beach, rain, rain or shine. You know? <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and also, as it turns out, it is very hard to keep up a vacation drinking schedule when you are living and working. <laughs> it's permanent. Yeah. I think it was a little bit of a surprise to the people that my husband and I met in this town. Uh, sort of, we were coming here for about a year and a half before our house was finished, and um, I think they were very surprised once we moved here that we weren't going out as much because they were they met vacation Sarah. You know, they didn't meet yeah. like God, they didn't meet. I have a job Sarah. Um, so I, I think ultimately it actually isn't that hard because you because you know you have it there. You know, in your back pocket. That makes a fair point. Yeah. Eventually, you know, you, maybe you get sick of the beach. I would say I get sick of the beach. Um, <laughs> but but you like, get, you know, it's I like can, you're not going to eat cupcakes all day long, right? Yeah. I know that you I know. can reward myself with it when I've done my work. And this is another thing about being an adult, you know, finish your chores and you can go play. It's, it's the same thing, except that the chores are not necessarily like clearing the table and taking out the trash and walking the dog. They're like, finishing a chapter of your book or, you know, paying your bills or, you know, finishing your taxes, which I just did. It's huge. And then you can go play is like you can go do a nice thing and a, a thing that you decided you were going to do because you're the adult and you're the boss and you've mm. got the money and you're in charge of your own schedule. And so you can reward yourself. Um, and so yeah, I, would reward I, I do that. With. I, I'll like, you know, all right, I've got to make these five calls or I've got to finish this project before I go, you know, go walk the dog or do something I want to do. Um, I'll, I'll force myself to finish these short-term projects, but make it kind of doable, make it something that I can finish in the next hour or something like that. Do you, do you find, Sarah, when you're writing and I know a lot of the, the writing that you do comes from your own experience, your own point of view, uh, your own sort of personal advice. Have you ever found that as you've committed something to writing, and I, I think, you know, as you write something down, you really, it really sort of solidifies what you think about something that once you've put it to paper, you go, I don't know about that. <laughs> once you, once you start to really solidify what it is that you're trying to express that you sort of, I don't know that I think that at all. Yeah. The writing process is very it's very mysterious and it's very personalized and individualized. So my experience might not be the same as for others. But for me, it's more about like I usually have something that I want to get across and I know what I want to get across uh -huh. and, I'll, and I'll put it down. And because I'm in the business of, you know, teaching other people how to do things and giving advice on how to get it done, I sometimes have ignored points like A through D and I'm all the way at, at E. Mm. And my editor says to me, like, your E is great. E is a great point, but you got to really go backwards and show people how to get there. Like you, you've made a leap that you've made because you know how to do this and you feel comfortable with it, but you need to help other people get there. And like when I was writing Get Your Shit Together and I was talking about, you know, the first thing you do is you set a goal. 
And, you know, that's that's so obvious. That's how you do it. And my editor was like, yeah, but how do you set a goal? So what do you mean? How do you set a goal? You decide you want to do something and that's your goal. And he was like, it's not so easy for everyone. So I had to go back and kind of really, really like think. So how do I get to this point and and tease Mm. out all of the little steps that are kind of automatic for me? So that is definitely, you know, part of the process where like I think I'm I'm saying something and I but I'm I haven't led the horse to water yet. Uh so that's something that I have to work on. I rarely change my mind when I've when I've made a, you know, a a proclamation. Um I'm pretty I'm pretty confident in the things that I'm saying, but I definitely rely on husband, my literary agent, my editor, the the people who read the manuscripts along with me before they ever go to print, I rely on them saying, have you thought about it this way? Have you considered this point? You know, somebody who's coming at it from this way might not think of it the same as you. And that does help me kind of make sure that sometimes I rewrite things to be more inclusive, to be like, hey, you, the reader, um, you might not have the same experience that I do. Note that I am not telling you how to live your life. I am saying that this this has worked for me and it might work for you. Um, so I do kind of rely on other people to to check my my grand proclamations and to be like, are you sure that that is going to make sense to everybody who might be reading? And I'm like, oh, you know, it might not. Okay. So it's a collaborative thing, you know. Um, but I also, I'm on the hook, you know, for every sentence that appears in these books. So the end of the day, like I do have to make decisions and be like, I am okay with that. I'm okay with that joke, you know? And sometimes people don't like my jokes and they give me one star reviews. And I'm like, sorry, I made a joke about about vegans. Like <laughs> I I you stand by the joke. For that one. Yeah. <laughs> does, does that happen um, to you a lot? Saying people don't like your jokes. <laughs> Everyone loves them all the time. Oh, really? Is that right? Yeah, that's one of my my more enduring uh hate mail hate mail things. The people yeah. They're a ravaged group. They really yeah, but, are. They are committed to the cause. And for that, but, I've got to at least respect them. I'm going to give you this just because I know we're running low on time. The, the the joke in the book is I'm not telling you how to live your life like some goddamn vegan. <laughs> and, and so pe- people will write to me and be like, I was with you until you made that joke. And just so you know, and then they give me all of the reasons why <laughs> veganism is the only way to be. And I must be an animal hater and this, that. And I was like, you're, you're making my point. Yeah. Like, I got no problem with somebody who's on a, who's a vegetarian, who's a vegan, on a restrictive diet, does gluten. Yeah. I, don't, I don't care. It's that you won't stop telling me that I should be doing it too. That's the That's joke. That's so yeah. You, evangelical you vegans. Right into yeah, they're evangelical vegans. <laughs> so with apologies to any vegans who may be listening who are not evangelical about it. Um, and I appreciate you guys. I see you out there too. Uh, but it, it is really, it is really shocking to me that people will take the time to write to me about that joke and prove my point <laughs> in doing so. Well, we're going to wrap that way. Sean and I can go get some steak. Uh, <laughs> Sarah, where can people find you and uh, get a copy of Grow the Fuck Up? They can find me at sarahnight.com. That's Knight, K-N-I-G-H-T. Uh, and yeah, Grow the Fuck Up is being published April 4th everywhere. So you should be able to go to your local bookstore or order from Amazon or Barnes & Noble or you know wherever you get your books, ebooks, audiobooks. I narrate the audiobook myself. So if you like listening to me talk, Get the audiobook. That's perfect. perfect. This will be a good preview then. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Hey, thanks so much. Thanks for being with us, Sarah. Okay. Thanks so much, guys. Have a good one. Well, it was good to talk to Sarah again. My takeaway from our discussion with her is that when we're looking at asking ourselves how we're feeling, we need to get sincere about that. What is that feeling that we are experiencing? And then why are we feeling that way? So if I'm feeling angry, why am I feeling that way? Well, maybe it's I feel threatened or I feel insecure. What is it? So that I can then address it and say, what am I going to do about it? So that I either explore that more, resolve the issue. But the more I become self-aware of those experiences, the better I can deal with them, the better I can lead others. And the more control I am of those, the better decisions I'll make. I think that my takeaway was on responsibility. You know, the she talked about it as one of the three keys to becoming an adult. And it's true. You know, it's like, did I know that 
within my soul that I know that subconsciously. Yeah, I think I, I think I probably did, but I don't articulate it enough. So finding responsibility uh, is not only a key component to becoming an adult, but it's something that we should consistently pursue is find something to be responsible for to make you a better person. You just made a great decision to listen to this episode of Decidedly. Make another great decision and leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. We appreciate your support. It helps others find our community and defeat bad decision-making in their own lives. For more daily decision-making insights, check us out at decidedlypodcast.com and on Facebook and Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. Thanks again for listening. I'm Sanger Smith, and this is Decidedly. Insights, advice, and comments provided by Sean Smith, Sanger Smith, and speakers identified as part of the Decidedly podcast should not be considered recommendations. Speakers not identified as members of Decidedly are expressing their opinion, and their statements should not be construed as reflecting the views of the Decidedly team. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes, not personalized advice.